I love that moment from Robert Weston, out of the stars, invoking the great cosmos of which we are a part. Margaret Fuller would certainly agree, she also, she also calls to the sun. She says, it is therefore that I would have woman lay aside all thought, such as she habitually cherishes, of being taught and led by men. I would have her dedicate herself to the sun, the sun of truth, to go where no, to go not where, if it beams, did not make clear the path. I would have her free from compromise, from complacence, from helplessness, because I would have her good enough and strong enough to love one and all beings from the fullness and not the poverty of being. It is so fitting to bring forth the imagery of the sun and the moon on this first Sunday after the autumnal equinox, where the power of each is felt by this world. This invoking of the naturalness of all that is around us and its greatness uh, is, comes to us in part from our uh, transcendentalist forebears. It is a, a mystery and a wonder and a continuing of that line of embracing all that is around us, that direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder comes from folks such as Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Bronson, and Louisa May Alcott. For these people in the 1800s articulated and passed their ideas through the fire of thought and exercised their views under the sun. And we get to do this as part of our theological inheritance. Because in our conversations and in our programs, there's many of us look to the same sources as the transcendentalists. Uh, we spend time with nature. We trust our intuition. These are primary sources for us. And we too seek the paths of the sun and the moon and the stars to kind of find and bolster our spirits in the world. But, but the way of this work is, has its difficulties, has its challenges. It is not always clear and the journey can be so hard. And as we will, as we heard uh, in the story of Mariah Mitchell, the limits that are imposed on us by human bias and thought around gender, for example, was and still is enough to derail those paths. So, how did these people proceed and rise up? How did our forebears do this work? So one of those who was this planter and uh, a fruit of the transcendentalists was Margaret Fuller. And she was this radical feminist in the 1800s, in the early 1800s in this country. She was brilliant beyond the scope of her peers and mentors, dedicated to action as well as deep study. And there were these times in her life when she was the voice of transcendentalism, both in theory and in practice. I mean, at one point, she was Ralph Waldo Emerson's editor. I just have pause there for a second. Emerson, who spoke of refulgent summers and the transparent eyeball and all the beautiful language, he needed an editor, and she was it. Hmm. I'm just like, yeah, right? 
and yet we are still so much getting to know her. She's not one of those first and foremost people that comes to mind in our great history. So I want to offer us a moment to spend some time with her path and see where that may take us, what that may say to us. I mean, she was one of those, Margaret Fuller was one of those kind of square peg and round hole kind of people. She felt so bound by the limited roles in her time, even as she obtained an education that would place her alongside the leading men of the age. And socially, she wanted, socially, it was a little challenging. She wanted like all or nothing. She was fearless and intense and honest in friendship and not really made for small talk. Um, even someone such as Emerson didn't always know how to be her friend. And in her case, she even left her beloved country, this country, to find a course and path of freedom and companionship and love. But her journey started with her father. Uh, Timothy Fuller and Margaret Crane welcomed Sarah Margaret Fuller into the world in May 23rd, 1810. The family was Unitarian and attended First Parish in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And what possessed Timothy to provide Margaret with this education as if she could attend the all-male Harvard is a little bit of its own mystery. He might have plain tried to keep her busy, frankly, and engaged. But Margaret embraced the challenge. She knew the challenges there were around her in her world. And so when her father was a state senator, here's an example of the challenge he laid before her. When her father was a state senator, he wrote a message to then three-year-old Margaret that said, tell Margaret I love her if she learns to read. Wait, tell Margaret I love her if she learns to read. And you know what? That actually worked. That ignited her drive. And she was, in fact, reading shortly after. She had the education of classical works of Greek and Latin and philosophy, all in elementary school. And she didn't have a lot of formal education, uh, but they did try, her, try to make her acceptable as a lady for marriage. That had to have been interesting and frustrating. Um, but those uh, instructions didn't really last long because more and more she knew she was out of sync. But she excelled. She continued to excel, but what to do with her became more and more of a concern. Um, she knew that the intellect was a huge part of life and that there was so much more. But she also knew, as she said, that very early she said, I knew that the only object in life was to grow. The only object in life was to grow. And so traditional church worship didn't work either. And she started to turn towards this path of transcendentalism. Um, her father made her return to church when she was 21, uh, but she dashed out of there as quickly as she could and went into the woods, much as Emerson and Thoreau did. And that helped her focus and deepen. And so... She also was under, uh, while she's trying to navigate all of the, the, those expectations, she also had obligations in her family. She was 
the full-time tutor for five younger siblings. Um, and, then, and then when she was 23, life became more difficult. Uh, her father, Timothy, died. And so Margaret became the head of house, too, and the main economic support for her family. And she wasn't able to travel as she was planning to do, but she was able to find education and be, work as a teacher, uh, be acquainted with those in the transcendentalist movement. Um, in fact, she was the first woman to be welcomed into the, the formal transcendentalist club. Um, Emerson describes her as uh, socially as in this, in her circles. She sa he says that she wore this circle of friends when I first knew her as a necklace of diamonds about her neck. They were so much to each other that Margaret seemed to represent them all, and to know her was to acquire a place with them. The confidences given to her were the best, and she held them to them. And she was an active, inspiring companion and correspondent. And all the art, thought, and nobleness in New England seemed at that moment related to her. She was everywhere a welcome guest. She was, in some ways, the center of the solar system in that moment. So in her effort, but she still had to take care of life and practicalities. So she went into teaching. Uh, one with Bronson Alcott, and then further on. And in her teaching and in her income, she was able to send her three brothers to Harvard. I mean, wow. She also continued to find some challenges. So women at that time couldn't offer formal lectures and be paid for them. Um, but they could have conversations and be paid for them. So in Elizabeth Peabody's bookstore in 1839, Margaret opened her first series of conversations with all female subscribers and current topics and philosophical questions and developed this other pool of life um, and conversation as well as another source of income. She also, uh, after the launch of that work, Emerson uh, asked her to become the editor of a new publication. The transcendentalists felt like they needed a whole publication to kind of get out their world a word, and they just created a work called The Dial, which was the main vehicle for articulating the transcendentalist views in the time. And she was, she was the editor. She was in the club. She was with them all. In the course of her work, she also was able to travel into the country and kind of have more experience outside of New England and was able to, from that experience, turn to politics as well, uh, recognizing the rights and needs for folks who were African-American, for folks who were Native American, as well as women, and advocated further for social reform. She was that kind of transcendentalist, not just in the head, but in the work as well. And finally, she realized she needed an even greater level of freedom over time and ended up being able to go to Europe in her travels. Um, because in Europe, she was able to move 
more than she was in the United States. And so in there, she became familiar with such luminaries as George Sand and William Wordsworth and really had a chance to bloom amid war and revolution. In the 1840s and 1850s, Italy struggled to maintain a democracy after centuries of papal rule. And Margaret supported the revolutionaries in their bid for freedom. One of those people, one of those fighters, was the person with which she found love. The Marquess, Marquess Giovanni Angelo Ossoli won her friendship and then her heart. And so not, longer af- not long after their affair began, Margaret gave birth to their son, nicknamed Nino. And the record of whether they were officially, formally married is a little unclear. The religious and social differences between Margaret and Ossoli made it really difficult to, enough just to have Nino baptized, never mind having a church-sanctioned wedding. But in any case, she hides the birth from her family and her peers and has to leave her child with a wet nurse when she returns to reporting uh, and her work across Europe, having looking like she'd had nothing more adventurous than a long summer in the country. I mean, can you imagine that she had to hide the baby and also leave the baby behind and pretend that she'd been on summer vacation and then go back to work? In this moment, the war does not end well for the fighters, and the French restore the Pope in Rome. And this small family of Margaret and Ossoli and Nino, they do reunite, um, and they live openly for a little while before deciding what to do next. In 1850, they decide to move to the United States. They were hoping for political safety and also to publish Margaret's volume that she'd wrote on the Italian Revolution. But tragically, that new life was not to be. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong as the steamer that brought them across the Atlantic um, was wrecked off the shore of Fire Island at the mouth of New York Harbor. And nearly everybody died including all of the Ossolis. The account of the storm was observed by people. There's only so much people could do. And it was just devastating. One died after another. And their lives, as well as all of the work that she brought with you, with her, including that manuscript, were lost. And Margaret, Margaret was 40 years old. Margaret's life was this quandary of challenge of a unique and powerful nature. She had to figure out step by step what to do with this genius. And yet she kept on with her search in every moment with the prayer, give me truth, she said. Give me truth, cheat me not by illusion. She kept seeking that truth that would be revealed. There were so many in her life. She had the great fortune of a friendship with Emerson and finding a voice in the emergence of transcendentalism. 
She had the tragedy at the end of her life, seeing her son drown and knowing that death was coming hours before the ship finally broke apart. She was this dominating intellect who once observed to Emerson, I know all the people worth knowing in America and I find no intellect comparable to my own. (laughs) Amen, right? And yet Emerson also remembered that he said, she made me laugh more than I liked. For I was at the time an eager scholar of ethics and tasted the sweet um, sweets of solitude and stoicism. And I found something profane in the hours of amusing gossip into which she drew me. Like Margaret got Emerson to gossip. Can we just like talk about that for like this? Like, like got, got Ralph to get over himself and have a good time. She was a woman who knew she had great power in her work and in her relationships. She called on women. and In fact, she called on all people to live out their truth and to be so dedicated to the sun. In her work, she had observed how justice means equal rights and equal opportunity and remind, was realized the nature of inequality, how in our society we have structures and systems and continuations of how we treat each other uh, as if one is better than the other. How that inequality deprives all of us, all of us, no matter where we fall in the hierarchy of society. You know, this is in the early 1800s she's having this conversation. We're still having that conversation today, right? Unequal treatment hurts all of us. On the bicentennial of her death, one person observed that it's really revealing how we lift up what men do and what men do in the claim of transcendentalism and not understand how significant her role was. In so many ways, she is deeply embedded in our entire movement, in our cultural history, as well as in Unitarian Universalism. And in preparing, you know, in thinking about Margaret, go back to thinking about her, uh, and kind of, you know, every now and then I feel so good about being so progressive, right? Like, mm-hmm, yeah, we're moving along. I got my rainbows. I got my all my things, right? And then to read what she was advocating for and how what she was observing was like, oh, she is way ahead. She is way ahead. A life like hers reminds us of our power in our times of powerlessness, our sources of strength, in all moments, especially tapping into that direct experience of transcending mystery of wonder, as well as the words and deeds of prophetic people that challenge us to confront the structures of evil, to confront them with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Her story is one of those that helps us find our way. Remembering her is not to make an idol or confer upon her sainthood, although, wow, she performed miracles. 
but it is to remember a woman with a life as complicated as ours, driven by the search for authentic living and a world made better because we, we have been in it. She said, those who seem overladen with electricity frighten those around them. Those who seem overladen with electricity frighten those around them, she wrote. I think maybe we should take up some of that charge. Let us live in that energy, dedicated as she was to the sun, that we may be more powerful, more, more confident, more courageous to live in the total fullness of our own beings. So may it be. Amen.